man. He, he lives far away from here. He was just asking for prayer. He was on his way to a home of one of his best friends whom he hadn't seen for a while. And he just heard that uh, his friend's wife had committed suicide. So he was on his way just to be with his friend, um, cry with him, not to offer explanations, just to kind of be there. When someone we love commits suicide, it is often kind of the most devastating thing that will ever happen to us. Um, and we don't want glib religious explanations of suffering. And I'm going to try today not to give you glib answers. Nevertheless, we do crave answers. Um, God's put a deep desire inside of us to want to understand, to want to be able to see the meaning of everything in this life. And that's especially true when it comes to evil and suffering. In particular, it bothers us a lot when we see evil people prospering while good people are suffering. The injustice, the arbitrariness with which suffering seems to occur has motivated some people to reject God as he describes himself in the Bible, to say that this loving and just and powerful God just could not exist. Now, for thousands of years, people have observed or personally experienced suffering, and they've kind of shaken their fist at God, some of them, and declared that a, a, a good God would never allow that kind of suffering or that much suffering or suffering to go on for that long. And some of them have become atheists, stating that they felt it was more intellectually honest to just say there is no God than to be confused about how the God described in the Bible could possibly allow these things. Famous atheist Richard Dawkins says the following, In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. And although such a worldview might actually make sense if everything were meaningless, if the love you feel for people is meaningless, if doing the right thing is meaningless, we all know that the love you feel for people is not meaningless. Doing good is not meaningless. God has put inside of us a light that tells us it is not meaningless. We just can't buy into that. Also, a worldview like Dawkins has no power when it comes to suffering. Before I became a follower of Jesus, I made his same choice and became an atheist, and it, it just made things worse. Tim Keller, in his recent book, Making Sense of God, writes about the ways that different worldviews try to make sense of suffering. Concerning the secular worldview that has become more dominant in Western civilization, like Richard Dawkins' view, Keller writes, Western societies are perhaps the worst societies in the history of the world at preparing people for suffering and death. And then comparing other classic worldviews and religions, he writes, Unlike the concept of karma, Christianity teaches that suffering is often unfair, not merited actions from a former life. Unlike Buddhism, Christianity teaches that suffering is a terrible reality, not an illusion. 
And Christianity finds nothing particularly noble about suffering. It shouldn't be welcomed. Unlike, yet unlike secularism, Christianity teaches that suffering can be meaningful, that it can make you something great. The worldview of the Bible is quite unique and quite powerful. It does not do away with pain, but developing a biblical worldview and having a strong, close, robust relationship with God will get you through anything in a way that will actually have deep meaning for you. Now, today we're going to look through Psalm 73. In a minute, I'll ask you to open the Bible. Not yet. It was written thousands of years ago, and yet it is still one of the best short treatments of this issue ever written. It is one of my favorite psalms. It is one of my favorite passages passages in Scripture. I just consider it a tremendous privilege to get to talk to you about it today. And my hope is that this will help solidify your understanding, your biblical worldview, so that when suffering comes, and for almost everybody it does, you'll you'll be ready. Or perhaps even that you'll be able to process some suffering from your past or maybe process some suffering that you're going through right now. I've been hearing so much about people in our church going through some very difficult things. Cancer, divorce, marital problems, loneliness, depression, job loss, or job uncertainty, kids or grandkids that are struggling. And as I said a few weeks ago, it just feels to me like there's more right now. And remember, adversity is not spaced out neatly so that you get one problem a year. It's a lot like the waves crashing on the beach. They come in sets. Also, if you're here today, and I'm, I just always assume there are some people here that are you know, kind of checking Jesus out. They haven't decided yet that they really want to uh, put their life in His hands. It may be that it's exactly your questions or your disappointments or even your outrage about suffering that's a big part of keeping you from trusting God as He's described in the Bible. So I hope today at least you'll get maybe some additional concepts or maybe some things to, to, to rethink. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we ask You to just flood this room with Your presence that we would each sense that You're here, that You're speaking to us, that You would, that you would tell us the truth. Help us to understand this, this concept that has bothered so many people for thousands of years. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So would you open a Bible to Psalm 73? If you use the Pew Bible, it's on page 485, but feel free to use your your phone or or whatever. Uh, We do ask that you don't do email because it will distract the person next to you. Um, Psalm 73 was written by a man named Asaph, or Asaph, however you want to say it. Nobody knows how to pronounce these things. He was appointed by King David to preside over music and worship, kind of like Justin. Uh, he was an eminent musician, and he wrote a number of psalms. I'm going to start with verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out with fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. 
to scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues stretch through the earth. Therefore, His people turn back to them and find no fault in them and they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. I urge you to keep that open. We're going to work our way through the Psalms. In the ancient world in which Asaph lived almost 3,000 years ago, most people suffered a lot. By examining human remains in ancient cemeteries, forensic pathologists have determined that virtually everyone who lived past 30 either suffered from parasites or had bones that had broken and not set well or some other debilitating thing that they were dealing with for however long they lived. And they only lived on average half as long as we do. Also, if they lived past 30, they'd all seen some of their friends die in plagues or famine. They'd seen half of their children die by age 10. And if their sons lived longer, they tended to be conscripted into the king's army. And King David had a lot of wars, so a lot of sons died. More than 80% of the population scratched a living out of the dirt without the benefit of the farming equipment or the fertilizer or the pesticides or the high-yield plants or the irrigation that we use today. Locusts, bad weather, could destroy their crops, threaten them with starvation, and often force them to sell themselves or their family into slavery. In addition, virtually every kingdom, even the Roman kingdom which was, empire which was known for the rule of law, every kingdom and civilization in the ancient world was highly corrupt. Corruption puts evil people in charge. People with, who use money and brute force to gain power and to pervert justice, to get away with whatever they want to because they'll just bribe somebody to get out of it. In Brazil, they taught us a saying. If you're a thief, you only go to jail if you don't steal enough. Have to steal enough to bribe the judge. See how I thought describes the wicked, verse 6. Yet their pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice, loftily, they threaten oppression. They're violent. They threaten. Probably very similar to how organized crime in this country works, how the mafia works. They have their own enforcers terrorizing people and hurting them if they don't do what they're told, if they don't pay up. So most people in the ancient world would have, identi- would have identified strongly with this psalm. They would see evil, unscrupulous people gaining power and wealth while relatively honest people paid their oppressive taxes and could not get ahead. Just suffered more and more. Now, although people in the ancient world really, in general, they suffered a lot more than we do. We still resonate with this psalm, don't we? We know people who lie and cheat and become wealthy. We know people who devastate the lives of the lives of the people who trust them by freaking around, yet they look like they're healthy and happy and they go from party to party. We've 
suffered or we've watched others suffer. Some of the people in this room were emotionally or physically abused growing up. Most of us experienced bullying at some point, and it always seemed like the bullies got away with it. I want you to take just a moment and think. Psalm 73, this first half is describing somebody who is frustrated and angry and so disappointed that life is so unfair. You ever felt that way? Maybe at work you refused to lie to clients. Your colleagues lied. They got ahead. Maybe you even got fired. Maybe at school you refused to cheat. But a whole bunch of people cheated and they ended up getting into better colleges or getting better scholarships. Maybe uh, you reported things accurately on your income tax and paid more and some other people reported them inaccurately and they have a lot more money now. Maybe you give 10% of your earnings back to God out of love and trust and worship and commitment and then you lost your job. Well, you know other people who give nothing. Great jobs, great houses, great cars. Maybe you were doing the right thing. Refusing to have sex before marriage but he or she left you and seems to be happily married to someone who didn't think obeying God was that important. And you're still alone. Maybe you've had a long life of treating people well. And being generous and giving of your time serving and being a faithful, hard-working spouse and a good parent. And now you're canceled. Well, you have friends who weren't that generous or faithful or helpful and they're retiring early and traveling the world. Or maybe since we do tend to suffer less than the ancient world, maybe you're fine. But you can't believe that a good, just, and powerful God would allow something like the Holocaust or like the Rwandan genocide. I just want you to know, first of all, that all of these things make God much angrier than they make you. God loves us. He loves people, and it makes him angry and sad. It breaks his heart when people hurt people, when people treat people unjustly. And the Bible is very, very clear that although some of this is a mystery, God is not the cause of evil. Adam doubted that God was truly good and was looking out for him, so he rebelled and disobeyed. And God is just, and He has woven into the fabric of reality, morality, right and wrong. And when Adam rebelled and disobeyed, it tore that fabric. There were consequences. All of creation fell. We were all changed from then on. We became much more selfish, much more brutal. Sickness and old age and famines and droughts and death and evil came into the world. So we live in a fallen world. That's why there's suffering. And all, all, every single person in this room has selfish or angry or jealous or lustful thoughts. And even thinking in those ways changes who you are and hurts other people. But it especially hurts people when we act them out. And as both Jesus and His apostles explained, our thoughts, our words, our actions, they disqualify us for having a relationship with God. So God would be 
our thoughts are words and actions. They're, they're so bad that God would be completely justified in destroying us all. Sin is much worse than we realize. And all of the horrible suffering in the world is a result of Adam's sins and our sins. Yet we often give ourselves a pass. We're all much worse than we realize, but we are also much more loved than we realize. God thinks we're so valuable that He figured out a way to be both just and also to forgive us. He took on human flesh and received the punishment we all deserve that we wouldn't have to receive that punishment, but could be forgiven and have a relationship with Him, be adopted into His family. It's an amazing story. And one thing that we can always remind ourselves when we are upset about suffering is that Jesus did not, God did not exempt Himself from entering in and suffering. He actually suffered more than anyone. And one of the things that people often do, they say, oh yeah, but he's God. No big deal. What's going to happen when we get to heaven is we're going to realize that not only did he suffer more than anyone has, it was harder on him than suffering has ever been on anyone. Much harder. And we will just go, oh, that's how bad my sins are. That's what they actually deserve. And so one of the things we remind ourselves when we're upset about suffering is Jesus rescued us so that we don't go through far worse suffering. God's not indifferent to suffering. He cares about it even more than you do. An extreme cost to himself suffered more than anyone ever will. And Jesus is in the process of fixing Everything. He's going to make all things new. It says at the end of the Bible, He's going to wipe away every tear. There will be no more suffering. But how do we find the strength and comfort we need right now? You see, we live in what we call the, the, the in-between time. Jesus paid for our sins and we've been pardoned and we have the Holy Spirit in us. We're going to be in a, a new world where there will be no suffering or sin. Every tear will be wiped away. But in the meantime, in between time, there's suffering. And sometimes it goes on for a long time. What do we do now? Well, that's what we're going to look at in the rest of Psalm 72. Verse 15. So, Asaph is angry. He's frustrated. He, he said, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. And then he says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them. What, what does he mean if I had said I will speak thus I would have betrayed the generation of your children? He means that if he were to go around saying, oh, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence, that that would have been a betrayal. Much like Richard Dawkins' writings are trying to persuade people there is no God and God does not care. God doesn't care if evil prospers and God is doing nothing about it. It would be a betrayal. 
Because God does care. God has done something absolutely amazing about it. Taking the sins of the world on Himself. And He continues to do more. He's in the process of destroying all evil and making everything right again. And He has built into reality horrible consequences that many people do experience when they go off the rails. And just something I want to just point out briefly. Because of Jesus, we suffer much less than our ancestors did. In Steven Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined, he uses tons of data to explain that the violence in our world today is enormously less than it used to be. That for centuries, it's been getting more and more peaceful. Pinker argues that the decline in violence over the centuries has been enormous. It's impacted military, conflicts, murder, genocide, the way we treat other ethnic groups, women, the way we treat women, the way we treat children, even animals. He does point out that the violence is still much higher in some of the uh, radical Islamic states. But other than that, he says, this is the most peaceful time in human history. Now, remember availability bias? Availability bias means that whatever information you're receiving, you'll think that's what's out there. And what sells on TV? All the negative stuff. So everybody thinks things are much worse than they are. Okay? I think the best explanation for the enormous decline in violence across the world is the impact Jesus Christ has had on humanity. Not just his teaching, but he's changed hearts and lives of people. And I always find it kind of sad and humorous when people who refuse to believe in Jesus are just very, very committed to the worth of the human being and to love and to justice and to serving others. And that's all his legacy. That's not the way it was before he got here. Asaph was frustrated and angry and did not see how foolish he was being until he went into God's presence. Then he realized that evil people are in slippery places and they'll come to ruin. Often in this life, their greed, their lust, their dishonesty destroys them. And we all have you know, known of, at least on the news, drug dealers who wind up dead or cheating husbands who ends up alone or tax evader who goes to prison. Not always, but sometimes. And if they don't suffer ruin in this life, this life is relatively short and everyone will stand before God at the day of judgment. Asaf finally realized that the evil people who seem to get it, be getting away with it, they're actually not going to get away with anything. God makes that clear over and over. It's actually Jesus in the New Testament who makes that the clearest. Once Asaf realized this, look at how his thoughts developed. Verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. When we're observing or experiencing suffering, sometimes we allow ourselves to be like Adam and to doubt God's goodness. Our heart becomes offended, pricked. It becomes embittered. Instead of gaining understanding, we, we react. We, we It's as if we're ignorant about how good God is, as if we're ignorant about how much He already suffered in order to destroy evil without destroying us. As if we're ignorant of how patient God is, not wanting anyone not to repent and become part of His family. And so we become brutish toward God, who has proven His love for us 
and suffer so much for us. Verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. If you've turned your life over to Jesus, even when, even when you're being ignorant and foolish, as, as Rafi just said that he was, by doubting God's goodness, he never leaves you. He holds tightly on your hand. When I, when I cross the street with my little grandkids who are four years old and two years old, I hold their hand, okay? And if they stumble and fall, I still have their hand. And if they let go, I hold on. And if they even try and get rid of Grandpa, they can't. Because I am determined to get on the other side of the street safely. And that's what God is doing with you, even if you don't perceive it. Could you please read Jesus' promise with me out loud? We'll put it on screen. Read with me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Would you read that last one one more time with me? My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Verse 24. You guide me with your counsel. It was when Azaf was in the sanctuary in the presence of God that God helped him understand that it has not been in vain that he has washed his hands, kept his heart clean and washed his hands in innocence. And if you've turned over your life to God, He guides you with His counsel. He guides you with His written word, the Bible. He guides you with the people in your small group who know you and care about you. He guides you with sermons and teachings from people. He guides you the Holy Spirit nudging you and, and pushing you to do things and maybe even speaking to you or taking away your peace when you get off track. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will receive me to glory. If you're a student of the Old Testament, you know that the Old Testament is not chock full of references to heaven. The New Testament is. The Old Testament is not. But there are some and this is one of the ones that's pretty straightforward. It's there. But because it's not as predominant in the New Testament, there was a group called the Sadducees in Jesus' day who had concluded that there was no heaven, there, there was no afterlife. You died and you're dead. And Jesus just thought that was ridiculous. So after they tried to trick him and fail, he said, he reminded them of what God had said. He said, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Everybody went, oh, didn't dare ask him questions. Because he thought it should be obvious from what God had said that no one who has ever lived has ceased to exist. It's supposed to be clear. This life and its suffering, this life is represented here by the dot. Okay? We live here for a finite time in the dot. And many people, especially when they get into a prosperous society and their expectations get raised, they feel like, you know, the dot is what's important. I want to be comfortable. 
I want to be prosperous. I want to have good times. I want to have lots of money for my retirement and travel the world. The dot is what is important. But that's not what the Bible says. In 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul makes a great explanation of how anybody who's turned their life over to Jesus, they have Him as the foundation, but then they choose what they're going to build on top of that, how much they're going to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in building gold, silver, and precious stones, really becoming more like Jesus. Or it says, Paul says, they can, they can build wood, hay, and straw instead. And he says that what happens is, at some point, what you've built will be tested by fire. And if it's the wood, hay, and straw, it burns up. And he says, you're still saved. You make it to heaven, but just barely. You don't get any reward. Whereas when you cooperate with the Holy Spirit and make the line important, what you're becoming that you take with you into heaven, instead of the comfort you'll have while you're on the dot, he says, that's building gold. Silver, precious stones on top of the foundation. And you choose. Every choice you make matters. And God doesn't care very much about your comfort. He cares about your character. Some people live for the dot. As though that's what is most important. It's not. Wise people live primarily for the line. Your choices impact who you're becoming. That impacts your eternity. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, he doesn't literally mean there's nothing on earth that he wants. He still wants justice. He wants his kids to live a long time. He still wants people to flourish. He doesn't want people to starve or die in a plague. But he is using hyperbole. That's a deliberate overstatement or exaggeration to make a point. To make it crystal clear that God is more important to him than everyone. Jesus did the same thing in the New Testament when he said, lest you hate other people, you're not worthy of being my disciples. Lest you hate your family. It was, again, hyperbole. But this statement, the second statement, is kind of the rallying cry, the slogan, the theme for those who live primarily for the line. And I want you to repeat, repeat it out loud with me. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I encourage you to memorize that today. And then every day this week, when you wake up, when, when it's noon, when you're going to bed at night, just say it again. And ask the Holy Spirit to make God your portion. And put a reminder on your cell phone if you need to. How does Psalm 73 prepare us to handle life wisely when we see evil people prospering while relatively good people, nobody's completely good, but some relatively good people that are trying, suffering? while we're in this in-between time, and they're often suffering at the hands of evil people. I'm going to give you a whole list of things that you can see in Psalm 73, but then I'm just going to tell you the one thing I want you to remember, okay? Well, Psalm 73 should help us to remember our own sinfulness and what those sins deserve. And what Jesus has done to rescue us so that we don't have to experience what we deserve. And to remember that we're not that we're living for the line, 
not the dot. There will be difficult things. But we'll cooperate with the Holy Spirit to become more like Jesus, to build gold and silver and precious stones, not wood and hay and straw. Any of you see some of the news reports this, this weekend about all the trees falling over? You see the ones that all the roots came up? When roots don't go down deep, then a storm comes and it blows over the whole tree because the ground gets saturated, saturated and over it goes. So what's the cure? It's actually difficult times that make roots go down deeper often, down to the water level, water table or something. So you want your roots to go deep. Suffering is actually one of the Holy Spirit's most effective tools in chiseling off our rough edges. We don't, we don't handle prosperity or comfort well. Often he has to shout at us through our suffering to get our attention. Psalm 73 helps us to remember that God is holding your hand tightly. He won't let go. He will not fail you. Remembering that His counsel is available to you. Remembering that He is with you and He promises to give you all the supernatural power you need to make it. Especially when you come to the end of yourself and are convinced you can't make it. And it tells us to remember that the prosperity of the wicked and all the fun that they're having, it's fleeting. It's not deeply satisfying. They'll either lose it in this life or they'll stand before God at the day of judgment unless they repent and let Jesus take their punishment for them. The wicked certainly appear to be having fun sometimes with their houses or food or parties or riches or cars, best health care available. But they don't get what is infinitely more valuable than all of those things together. What is the greatest treasure that exists? Let me put it in perspective for you. If, if you had to give up your job for your loved ones, would you? If you had to give up your money for your loved ones, would you? If you had to sell your house for your loved ones, would you? If you had to give up your success for your loved ones, would you do it? Now, most of us would at least say that we would sacrifice any of those things for our loved ones. Jesus actually did sacrifice everything for his loved ones, for you. But when we get to heaven, we're going to see God face to face. And we will be overwhelmed and enthralled by his glory, by his goodness, by his power, by his beauty, by his love. And we will immediately realize that having a relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is worth far more than anything the wicked have with their prosperity. That God Himself is the greatest treasure that exists. What's the promise of Psalm 73? God Himself. The prosperity of the wicked does not even compare. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. About the treasure that is God, Jesus said. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That treasure is God himself. I love being inspired by reading the stories of Christians who, who really were devoted to Jesus. And one of my favorite is a man named Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China for decades. But he was different than the other missionaries. He 
The other missionaries kind of stayed in the coastal cities and dressed European. He dressed Chinese, learned the Chinese language as well, and went into the interior. Uh, and at one point, they had 800 missionaries. They planted the seeds that eventually would, would flourish after World War II, and now there are tens of millions of Christians in China. Great debt owed to Hudson Taylor. But he suffered a lot. He had some debilitating bouts with illness. The rigors of living in China and tropical diseases and so forth uh, killed his first wife and most of his seven children. During the Boxer Rebellion, 58 missionaries and 21 children were killed. But Hudson Taylor earned more respect for Jesus by refusing to hold that against the Chinese people and refusing to accept any compensation for their losses. And with all that was constantly going on, someone asked him how he dealt with all the pressure he was under. And he said, it does not matter how great the pressure is. What really matters is where the pressure lies. Whether it comes between you and God or whether it presses you nearer his heart. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Lord, would you please meet us?